electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod, a meme stocks missed signals. I think a lot of people got this story wrong, possibly including us yesterday, uh, definitely including uh, Wall Street yesterday. Bed Bath & Beyond's big buy from a Reddit star. The, The options were bought back in March when the stock was trading at about $16. That may be a big sell. He clearly saw everybody piling into the stock and he decided he was going to run for the hills. The nation's top health agency looking inward. It's time, says Dr. Scott Gottlieb. I don't think CDC ever had the operational capability to run a national response to a pandemic of this scale. I think we were wrong to assume that it did, and that's the original mistake we made. Plus, the extremely online Elon Musk keeps Twitter, Wall Street, and newsrooms abuzz. Was he really buying that team? But he is not horsing around, says author Walter Isaacson. We all think of him as somebody joking about Manchester United or making political things. But hour after hour, and he hones in like a laser, whether it's on the autopilot of the car or Optimus, the new robotics that he's trying to do. All that today and much more. It's Thursday, August 18th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. It's a Thursday. It is late August. And if you want to take... First up today on the podcast, the Federal Reserve is set to continue hiking interest rates to address record high inflation in spite of a recent pullback in energy prices. The policymaking open market committee spilled the tea a bit. They let us in on what happened in the July meeting. All right, we call it breaking Fed news. The minutes of the last meeting, uh, the one where they raised interest rates by 75 basis points, three quarters of a percent. Uh, those minutes are due out momentarily. Uh, let's go now to uh, Steve Leisman, who has those minutes. The Federal Reserve, after hiking 75 basis points in the July meeting, uh, decided that they would anticipate further rate hikes ahead. They said they needed to move to a restrictive policy that was required for them to meet their policy goals of low unemployment and stable inflation. Andrew? Thanks, Bex. Uh, let's talk about the Fed, because at that July Fed meeting, officials indicating they would likely not consider pulling back on rate hikes until inflation came down substantially. That's according to the minutes from that meeting. Now, officials did not specifically provide guidance for future increases, uh, and they said they would be watching the data closely, as you might imagine, before making those decisions. But basically, shall we say, Becky, Steve's been right. I think the economists have been right. I mean, well, we'll see. We'll see what right really what right really is at this point, because um, I think Steve's been saying 75 basis points. I think the economists have been saying 75 basis points. The market is saying 50. So, You tell me. Well, the one thing that kind of throws everything into a bit of disarray is what happened with the U.K., with the plus 10 percent inflation rate, actually having to come up with an entire new uh, numeral to pull it out, 10.1 percent. 
Look, there are questions about if what's happening in Europe is going to be so different from what's happening here. Obviously, the energy story is different. That's going to confuse things. But that has to have the Fed kind of looking at things and thinking, what do we do next? 50 or 75 basis points. Um, we'll see. I think the bigger question is how long do they keep that up? Are we talking about months and months and months of this? Are we talking through the end of next year? Is the market right about the Fed eventually having to cut rates by next year? And that, those are all big questions that it's going to take some time. The Fed is data dependent that's at this point, so every number matters. Right. I think they're going to keep their foot on the neck of the economy for a much longer time than the market's expecting, but that's just me. We should also check out shares of Bed Bath & Beyond. They are sharply lower after several straight days of wild volatility. Last night, investor Ryan Cohen said in a filing that he intends to sell his entire stake in the retailer. Now, hypothetically, if he managed to sell all of his Bed Bath Common stock at yesterday's closing price of $23.08, he would net about $60 million on that investment he made of about $120 million. Now, this only happened back in March. That's when he first invested on this. And we should note that Cohen's filings notify the SEC of his proposal to sell, but it doesn't necessarily indicate that he has sold any shares. The stock right now down by about 14.5%. It was down by about 20% when this was first announced, maybe down 18% later yesterday. Um, but this has been a huge bet that he made in the options market, and we'll see what happens with some of these things, too. Well, you know, there's a lot, to me, there's lots of questions about this, um, even legal questions about the selling. Um, and I don't, this is not, to me, a, a situation per se of, market manipulation. I think that the truth is, I think a lot of people got this story wrong, possibly including us yesterday, uh, definitely including uh, well, Wall Street yesterday, in terms of what was really happening. Because if you really go back and look, and I was trying to figure this out during the program, as we were talking about it yesterday, you know, the stock had moved, that big, that big intraday moved 70% one day, and mm -hmm. yesterday again, on the back of these, uh, on the back of what looked like new options activity by him. The truth was that it wasn't new options activity by him. In fact, right. these options had been bought months and months and months ago. But because of a, a new filing by the company, the sort of Wall Street bets crowd and others, uh, I think, misunderstood what the filings were saying and were suggesting that they were new. That's what led to the decision by so many investors to pile into this stock. He clearly saw everybody piling into the stock, and he decided he was going to run for the hills at the same time. So yeah, the, the, I think the options were bar bought back in March when the stock was trading at about sixteen dollars. So you've seen right. the run up. But um, you but can understand the, why. But you the might point want to file is that you have a situation here where where the stock is moving, in truth, on on wrong information. I mean, that's uh, right. It, it was moving on on the wrong information, um, and he decided he was going to take advantage of that. And so I think that there's going to be some people who are going to look at that, especially as he goes into other investments in the future. And, you know, in a world where everybody's talking about their diamond hands all the time, and I'm not saying he's uh, Mr. Diamond Hands, but a lot of these folks, you know, say that they're apes and that they're, you know, that's, that's the strategy. Um, they think they need to understand that sometimes the sponsor, just like in, this, in the context of SPACs and other things, uh, they may not be diamond hands. So Well, especially if you see are. a 50% return on your investment. If you can make $60 million on $120 million that you made, you know, like, look, it sounds like a logical move. A lot of people would look at that and say, yeah, time to rein in some of these gains. Maybe not the traditional people who are looking at this and saying we're going to be diamond hands, but 
most investors would look at that and say, okay, that's a pretty big gain. Maybe um, with this volatility, I want to get out. Sure, but not the people who were driving up the stock. Meaning, meaning these are sort of, to me, maybe the typical investor, but these are not, this is not, I don't know what typical is anymore, but the people who have been in, in this stock, the people who have been in, you know, AMC, any of these quote unquote meme stocks that have been driven by things that are completely unrelated to fundamentals, I think oftentimes they misunderstand. And now you're seeing, I mean, the, the consternation online about Ryan Cohen, even in the past 24 hours is shocking. I don't know. I don't know if it's shocking. Maybe it shouldn't be shocking. But I mean, I think there's a lot of people who go, oh, my God, how is it possible that, you know, our our dear leader has left us? Well, this is what happens um, in the context of these things. But I think there's going to be a lot of people. Oh, well, I, I don't say there's going to be. There are a lot of people who are quite upset about the fact that he's uh, selling those shares. And some new red flags on China's growth. Goldman Sachs lowered its 2022 full year forecast to 3 percent, down from 3.3 percent. And Nomura slashed its projection to 2.8% from 3.3%. Those cuts represent continued pessimism over Beijing's growth target of around 5.5%. In July, officials in China indicated that the country might fall short of that GDP goal. And of course, Andrew, we saw the numbers on Monday that, that really kind of kicked off the decline in oil prices. Um, China's economy not doing nearly as, as as well as had been anticipated, as had been expected. And that is uh, kind of cutting the demand picture out from WTI, why we've seen the weakness this week. Well, you know, it's fascinating because the other piece of it is we all we talk all the time about, you know, the end of the American empire, the, the takeover of the world by China, China's economy being this, you know, super strong um, you know, system that some people are now wondering whether we should be, you know, modeling ourselves after uh, relative to what, you know, what oftentimes feels like a mess here at home. And the truth is that if you look at their economy, they have a lot of challenges ahead. I mean, uh, it, you know, you can say all of these, you know, th there are meaningful problems here at home, but China long term, even even long term, actually has legitimate problems. The short term problems that, have been with COVID, with the shutdowns that they are still dealing sure, with but I think because they you, haven't managed to. I think if to, you look even farther out um, and start to look at some of the demographic issues and some of the other things that they're going to start to confront. You could say that for a while. I, I, I agree with you, though. There are some demographic issues they're going to have to face. Um, but I think the short-term issues that they're really facing are just that they haven't gotten their arms around COVID, haven't found a way to protect their population. Well, they don't have the natural immunity because of all the lockdowns. And, and that is incredibly complicated. It's why they're looking at their central bank having to cut rates versus the rest of the world kind of dealing with inflation. We agree. Cheese will be next. Still to come on Squawk Pod. An overhaul at the CDC, two and a half years after COVID-19 first rocked the globe. The agency's director, Rochelle Walensky, says there's room to improve. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the changes ahead. I thought what she did was pretty bold. What she's trying to do is drive a cultural change inside the organization. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is in for an overhaul. After an internal review of the agency's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky announced that she will spearhead a restructuring in the hopes of improving the CDC's response to crises and restoring public trust. Dr. Walensky spoke to CBS last night. We learned some hard lessons over the last three years, and as part of that, it's my responsibility, it's the agency's responsibility to learn from those lessons and do better. Here's Becky Quick delving deeper into the story. Joining us right now is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor who also serves on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. And uh, Scott, as soon as I saw this news yesterday, I thought of you because you've been warning us throughout the pandemic that things needed to change at the CDC, that uh, there really was a need for an overhaul. Does this fit the bill? Is this what you think needed to be done? Well, look, I think it's a pretty bold set of diagnoses in terms of what's wrong at the CDC that the CDC director put out. I heard that she also did an internal video that was unflinching and went over fairly well internally inside the CDC. Um, I think she's keyed in on the right things. It's a very academic culture. It's not operationally driven or operationally focused. It's a culture that rewards publications, for example, rather than operational execution. Um, They hold on to their information too long because they seek to publish it rather than put out bottom line information that can inform current decision making policymakers in the setting of a crisis. They typically think that they're speaking to public health agencies and physicians and not to consumers. And so when you look at their guidance or the data that they put out, it's not interpretable to the average consumer and the need to learn how to speak directly to consumers because that's the position they're in. It's similar to the challenges that FDA faced maybe 10 or 15 years ago when it also had to undergo a change in terms of how it put out information and who it saw as its constituency. Typically, the FDA always thought that it was speaking through providers to patients and not directly to patients. That's obviously changed, and now the agency speaks directly to patients. CDC needs to do something similar here. The one piece that I think was missing Um, was an effort to try to skinny down the CDC and focus it back more on its disease control mission and its national security mission. I still believe there's things that CDC does that could be done better by other agencies. I think it's very hard for the current CDC director to start giving up current authorities. So I wasn't expecting that in this proposal. But I do think that's something that Congress needs to take a serious look at. You know, Scott, I was... I guess, surprised to see the news just in terms of the timing and how the director is actually taking this on, but but not shocked because I think the entire nation saw so many of the problems with the CDC as this was going on. Granted, it was an incredibly difficult pandemic, but you know I always had this idea of the CDC being what was from the movie Outbreak or the movie Contagion, where they would see something, get on the ground and make sure that they were addressing it. And this changed my entire perspective. Can you put that back? Can you really restore public trust? Because it seems like there's a long way they have to go. Well, look, I don't think the CDC was ever equipped to handle uh, a contagion of this scale, something that was national, global. Um, When you think of the CDC and you think of those movies, you think of the Epidemiological Surveillance Service and the people who go into the field to collect samples and make a diagnosis 
of a new pathogen. And I don't think CDC ever had the operational capability to run a national response to a pandemic of this scale. I think we were wrong to assume that it did. And that's the mistakes. That, that's the original mistake we made. When you look back uh, through recent history and you look at Zika, you look at Ebola, even when you look at bad flu seasons that we've had in recent decades, a lot of the same problems that the CDC experienced, not just within the context of COVID, but also now monkeypox, also surfaced during those outbreaks where it wasn't equipped to deploy a diagnostic test. It didn't do real-time analytical work. It was slow to release information that could inform public health decision-making. So those things were always manifest. They just became more exacerbated in the setting of a, a public health crisis of this magnitude. But the CDC never was capable of executing a response to a public health crisis of this magnitude. That's what needs to change. If you want CDC to be the nexus of that response, the agency is going to have to change some of its operational capability. And the current director has been hiring more response experts and putting them in permanent positions. That's a good move. But once again, I think things like the vaccine adverse event reporting system, which is something that they do, can be handled by FDA. I think a lot of the tobacco control work can be handled by FDA. A lot of the disease prevention research can be done by CDC. Final point, when I was at FDA, we tried to get the vaccine adverse event reporting system moved from CDC to FDA. I think we were close to doing it. And the deal I tried to strike with CDC was that I would let them keep the FTEs so they could keep all the money and we would just take on the responsibility. Post-market vaccine adverse event reporting should be with the with the FDA, not CDC. Those are the kinds of things where I think you could skinny down the CDC's mission and focus it more, get more resources and authorities for that core disease control work. And this is the final point. I think the only way really to get a consensus on Capitol Hill with congressmen who are skeptical of the CDC right now to give them more resources and authority is to say, look, we're going to focus the agency more. We want to focus it more on this disease control mission. And we'll, we'll lose these ancillary things or these things that can be handled better by other agencies or just as well. But we need more resources and authorities to do that core disease control mission better. I think that's the way you're going to get a political compromise here. I, I mean, that makes sense, I think. I, I think I hear you that the vaccine reaction should be the FDA because they're the ones who are following up with the pharmaceutical companies. The CDC should be responsible for tracking the disease as it comes in. But I have to tell you, one of the things that I was shocked by during the pandemic was how ridiculous it is trying to track this information, how there isn't a national database for any of these things. The numbers were coming in by fax machines from different health departments all over the country. I, I had no idea that we were that bad at just tracking the problem. When you don't know what you're dealing with, how can you possibly figure out how to fight it? Yeah, look, it's a problem on both ends, getting information in and getting information out. We've talked a lot about the CDC's inability to get bottom line information out in an interpretable way that can inform real time decision making by consumers, by policymakers, by businesses. But it's also how the CDC collects information. You're right. Their IT systems are outdated. They, Congress has given them money to invest in them. They haven't done it. They've ignored some of the guidance from Congress or the direction. What did they Congress. do with the money? The, the direct. Um, they gave not them money spent and they did uh, There's been uh, there's been articles written about this, how CDC didn't respond to congressional directives to build out a better IT system. And the current director has recommitted to do that. She talks specifically about IT and lab services as two operational capabilities that need to be improved, but they don't collect information well. Look, and they also have a, a, an orientation to information that I think is sort of antithetical to operating in a pandemic. For example, look at how they collected information on hospitalizations early in the COVID outbreak. They weren't collecting actual hospitalizations. They were modeling how many hospitalizations they thought were happening on a daily basis based on a sample that only included about 20% of the hospitals. 
So with a pandemic that was moving around the country in different ways at different points in time, their model was way off. And now if you go to the CDC's website and you actually look at hospitalizations through COVID, they acknowledge on their websites, written on their website, that any data before August of 2020 isn't reliable. That's because that's when CDC was in charge of collecting that data based on their modeling. Post-August 2020, HHS took over the collection of that information and actually mandated that hospitals report the actual hospitalizations happening on a daily basis. I have seen criticism online of Rochelle Walensky, the leader of the CDC right now, that she was critical of everybody else but not herself. Is that warranted? Um, I think she's been introspective. I, I really haven't seen that. Uh, and I think she's in a, she's in a hard position uh, putting out you know, sort of an analysis of the the shortcomings of her own agency as the agency director. So I thought what she did was pretty bold um, putting this out. I think anytime you acknowledge that there's mistakes made on your watch, it's an acknowledgement of your own shortcomings. So I I don't really um, see that in the messaging. Your hope for the CDC five years from now, you think it's saved? You think it looks different? You think it's been reformed like this? Not without Congress. And I think what she's trying to do is drive a cultural change inside the organization. And her biggest challenge, quite frankly, right now, now that she's done the first part, the hard part of, of acknowledging what the mistakes are, being very public about it, is driving that change. And people are remote. People are not in the halls of CDC. They're not working there physically. They're still a remote agency. And so long as people aren't coming into the office, it's going to be very hard to drive cultural change in that organization. I also think it's going to require Congress. Congress is going to have to come in and legislate and successively legislate, like it did with FDA to reform FDA two decades ago, where it legislated on a regular basis through the um, the user fee reauthorization. So every five years, Congress passed legislation that not just provided the agency more resources, but also reforms. You're going to need constant action by Congress to try to reorient that agency. Um, and I, I, quite frankly, the, the hardest part, in my view, is going to be Congress. I don't think they're up to it. I don't think there's enough people on Capitol Hill who understand that organization well enough to actually write legislation to fix it. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. Up next on Squawk Pod, day after day, tweet after tweet, Elon Musk sends Wall Street and the Twitterati into a tizzy. But Walter Isaacson, who's in the middle of writing Musk's biography, says there's much more to the man than meets the tweets. I think you could uh, certainly wish, gee, I wish this guy weren't more, uh, you know, weren't so impulsive, or this guy didn't do things like this. I think if you had a person like that, he might also be somebody who wouldn't be sending a rocket to Mars. That's right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Ben Andrew by, up and Andrew Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick. Becky? Thanks, Andrew. Well, oops, he did it again. Elon Musk once again causing a Twitter frenzy, this time over Manchester United. Joining us right now to talk about why the Tesla CEO continues to do what he does on Twitter is Musk biographer Walter Isaacson. 
He's a professor at Tulane University, a partner at Perella Weinberg, and a CNBC contributor, among many, many other titles that we could go on about. But Walter, um, look, we, I guess, obsessively follow Elon Musk. He's got a huge following, not only uh, around the globe, but just on Twitter in general. And as much as I admire him for the incredible things that he's done, everything from SpaceX to Tesla to PayPal and more, you know, you keep wondering why these unforced errors, uh, doing things like tweeting about a publicly traded company that he might buy, watching the stock jump and then drop. Why does he do that? Well, you know, uh, he's somebody who follows Twitter memes enormously. And this is a running joke on Twitter. You know, Manchester United fans are all over Twitter and they're worried about the Glazer family owning them. And they're always begging billionaires to please buy Manchester United. So this is a joke. And anybody who is deep into Twitter the way Elon Musk is knows that this is a running gag on Twitter uh, so I don't think he was thinking this is a publicly traded stock that I'm going to jack the price up on. But it's basically, uh, you know, a, a, a joke on Twitter. I, I think you're right. I, I would agree with that assessment, but not thinking it through. I mean, yesterday we kind of made the analogy with great power comes great responsibility. He may not have had the intention of, of jacking the stock up and having buyers and sellers on either side who lost money on that. But that was the end result. And this isn't a first time offense. Why does yeah, well, he... I think you could uh, certainly wish, gee, I wish this guy weren't more, uh, you know, weren't so impulsive or yeah. this guy did do things like this. I think if you had a person like that, he might also be somebody who wouldn't be sending a rocket to Mars or somebody who's moving us into the era of electric vehicles. There's a piece out on Town and Country this morning. It just hit in the last hour or so. And it takes a look at the captains of industry today and how different they were from those of the past maybe not in all ways, but maybe more venal and maybe more out there in this respect. And the, the beginning of that piece starts with an anecdote from John Bogle that he, he said at one point he had Kurt Vonnegut out on, uh, at his house along with, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with another people at Shelter Island and Joseph Heller was there. And at one point, Kurt Vonnegut told Joseph Heller that Bogle was making more money in a day than Heller ever made on the entire sales for Catch-22. I guess the response from Heller was, yes, but I have one thing he doesn't, enough. I mean, <laughs> is there something to be said just for the cult of personality that has developed these days, not just around Elon, but along, around so many of the other billionaires? Well, as a historian, you can go back to the era of Jay Gould and Harriman and Rockefeller and many others. Uh, when uh, the malefactors of great wealth, as you know, that was Teddy Roosevelt's line for them. So it has in some ways ever been thus. But yes, I mean, the system we have now uh, allows for the accumulation of wealth in ways that we haven't seen before. I do make a distinction between people who are accumulating wealth because they create companies that make amazing things versus people who accumulate great wealth because of financial engineering or hedge funds or whatever speculation they may do. So if you look at a Bezos and a Musk, the two people at the top of the uh, wealthiest list, they've both created uh, phenomenal companies and their wealth comes from having equity that they put into those companies. That's a fair point. And I do appreciate the difference on those two. Um, when you look at what happens with that wealth, I, get the, I guess the other next question is, what do you do with the wealth? Do you give back to society? Do you use it to create new ventures? And I guess in both those cases, the, the, the answer is yes, they're, they're using a lot of that, at least, 
to push back into new creative ventures and, and, and exploration? Yeah, I think the question, sort of the way you phrase it is, are you using it to indulge yourself in ridiculous things like buying islands and yachts <laughs> or whatever? Or do you uh, use it for a mission that you particularly have? In Musk's case, it's almost uh, a strange phenomenon, which is, although he once had four or five houses, he's gotten rid of all of his houses. He lives, you know, in a rented place in Austin, Texas, and in a, you know, really almost like a prefab home in Boca Chico, which is where SpaceX in South Texas is launched. He doesn't have yachts or islands or whatever. The money, and, you know, I don't mean this as a... Uh, you know, it's just some grand moral statement, but the money is all invested in either Tesla or SpaceX so that it can push the boundaries of what he wants to do. Hey, Walter, tell you about what he wants to do. There's, there's a story, and I'm sure you saw it in Axios uh, this morning, um, about Musk attending and speaking at a, uh, a GOP donor event that was taking place in Wyoming. Uh, he was uh, in conversation, yeah. it looks like, with uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. And it's fascinating because he shifted, as you know, from being a, a staunch Democrat, publicly at least, really on the basis of uh, his views around climate and what he thinks Tesla is trying to do in the climate space and seems to be edging closer uh, to being a Republican, saying that he's at least for this uh, go round come this fall, that he's supporting supporting Republicans in large part because he feels, I think, that President Biden and a lot of the Democrats have not treated him properly or at least given him the respect that he deserves, given the kind of conversation from the White House, at least early on, uh, where they would praise Mary Barra and uh, Ford and, and everybody else except for Tesla. How do you think, though, I mean, taking that ego piece of it out, how do you think he squares the circle of this issue around climate, which I think has been his life's work, I think, with Absolutely. These, these shifting political views. Yeah, well, his uh, political views are as eclectic as many of his other uh, personal attributes. Uh, and I think that they're more complex. He's not just shifting from the left uh, to the right. Uh, you're right. Part of it was personal when uh, Joe Biden goes out over and over again and thanks GM for leading the way into electric vehicles after Tesla has created a million electric vehicles this past year, and GM has created like, I don't know, 25 or 26 of them, that's it. So that hurt. I also think that he got somewhat turned off by the overregulation, but also what he called the woke mind virus that he felt was infecting society. So right when he went to Kevin McCarthy's retreat in Wyoming that you just referred to, he said, uh, I'm for the left wing of the Republican Party and the right wing of the Democratic Party. Now, those are Venn diagrams that don't overlap all that much these days. But he's trying to be eclectic in his politics, not be extremely ideological. And uh, he went to Kevin McCarthy's retreat. But, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy's the congressman he's known for a long time for where SpaceX has its headquarters in Hawthorne, California. So I'm not sure that this was a major political statement. I think he kind of just agreed to go out there, stayed a couple of hours. And I know last night he was back working on uh, the Raptor engines and the boosters. He was at meetings trying to figure out how he's going to launch Starship. So I don't think this was a major political statement. Hey, Walter, um, you're working on the biography. And I know you said earlier this year that, that trying to take in his life and understand what's happening there is kind of like 
trying to take notes while you're drinking from a fire hose. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, I, yeah, you're I just right. wonder, without giving it away, obviously, I mean, we get so much of this information and we're just following from the sidelines. You've got an inside seat for all of this, an upfront and close personal look. Um, without giving away the book, what would be something that you have been surprised by the most um, during your time studying him and getting to know him? I think one of the things that surprises me the most is the intensity of his engineering instincts and how much time he spends on that. We all think of him as somebody joking about Manchester United or making political things. But hour after hour, including at 10 p.m. last night when I'm working, he is sitting there figuring out the new uh, boosters, uh, booster eight and booster seven that he has down in Boca Chica and exactly how the welding is going to work because he wants to have them launched by in the next few months. And uh, to me that I totally uh, get head snapped because everybody else would be talking about buying Twitter or, or buying Manchester United. That would be the topics of their conversation. And he hones in like a laser every day whether it's on the autopilot of the car or Optimus, the new ro robotics that he's trying to do, he's just hour after hour focusing on engineering. That's amazing. When's the book come out? You tell me. Uh, it's like, uh, I don't know, I feel I'm in the middle of a story here and I just have to let uh, let it play out. Good luck. It'll be, it'll be soon date. enough. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, um, it'll be in the next couple of years. And then you can write the addendums and the addendums. I think I will let the torch, torch be passed. I'll take all my leftover notes and say, okay, who's next? Who gets, or maybe I'll do a volume two. We'll figure it out. Well, Walter, we're looking forward to it. And thank you for your time today. It's good to see hey, you. Hey, Becky, it was great talking to you and Andrew. Thanks, guys. And that is Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen. Leave us a rating, five stars, or write a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. And we'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.